0: Of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 21. We'll be reading the whole chapter. It's another dark chapter in the dark reign of Israel's darkest king, King Ahab. Let's hear God's Word together. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria And after this Ahab said to Naboth Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden Because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it Or if it seems good to you I will give you its value in money But Naboth said to Ahab The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers And Ahab Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite. And he said to uh, to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders, of, the, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel uh, had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard uh, the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you, I will utterly burn you up, and I will, and will cut off from Ahab every male, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab, Ahab who dies in the city, dogs shall eat, and anyone who... Of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring disaster upon his house. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven, you are a righteous judge, the defender of the weak, the deliverer of the oppressed, and punisher of the wicked. Father, we know that the weak, the vulnerable, the widows, and the orphans have a strong refuge in you. You are their God, their shield, and their rock. Father, as we encounter so much evil, so much injustice, so much oppression, so much innocent bloodshed in this dark world, we pray that as we consider your holy character, your righteous judgment against evil, that we would find strength and comfort. Father, we declare and we believe that every wrong will be righted when you intervene in human history to judge the living and the dead. Our hope, O Lord, is in you. And we pray this morning as we encounter the truth about who you are, the truth about your justice, that we would be fortified to live well in this world for your glory. Amen. As we read through the Psalms, we hear again and again the refrain, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And that expression of anguish is at times the result of injustice and oppression. Lord, how long will you continue to wait as you see The weak in the world and in society, the widows and the orphans oppressed by the strong. How long before we see the wicked punished and the innocent delivered? How long, O Lord? And this is a theme throughout the Psalms. Come, God, bring justice to this world. Punish oppressors, deliver the oppressed. And we see from the very beginning of Scripture, the very beginning of human history, that Human history has been, in fact, a story of oppression, of violence, of the shedding of innocent blood, the strong preying on the weak. In the fourth chapter of Scripture, we see Cain taking the life of his innocent brother, Abel. By Genesis 6, we see that the world has descended into darkness and violence and oppression. I don't know what the world was like pre-flood. I think if you want to know something of what it was like, read a little bit of history. Read about the Assyrians, the Romans, the Greeks. Uh, see the kind of cruelty that human beings are capable of descending into. In fact, Tom Holland, uh, in, in a recent book, Dominion, argues that you know, in the West, we have this idea that if you're strong, you, it's, it's shameful to use your strength to pray on the weak. Right? The, part of being strong means you don't pray on the weak. But he argues that this is a Christian moral impulse, In the ancient world, if you are strong, you you, you use your strength to benefit yourself and plunder the weak. And we see this this, uh, tendency towards oppression throughout Scripture and in human history. How long, O Lord? And this is one more, this uh, chapter 21 in 1 Kings is one more moment of innocent bloodshed. But it's not just a moment of innocent bloodshed. It's also, encouragingly, a statement about our God, the righteous judge of all oppression and evil. It confronts us with the reality of human oppression, injustice, innocent bloodshed, but it encourages us by pointing us to the righteous character of God. As we look at this passage, we will note four things. Uh, Number one, we'll consider Ahab's landlust. Number two, King Jezebel's plot. Number three, the Lord's vengeance and for the Lord's mercy. Ahab has a palace. His palace is right by Naboth's vineyard. And it comes to him one day that, man, that plot of land, that vineyard could be repurposed and I could turn that into a vegetable garden. What is life after all without a vegetable garden? Not much. So I want that land and Ahab goes to Naboth And he makes a very reasonable, you know, financially perhaps beneficial offer, beneficial to Naboth, and says, uh, give me that piece of land, the vineyard, I'll give you a better piece of land for it. Or I'll, I'll pay you for it. But just give me that land, it would make a great vegetable garden. But Naboth, unlike Ahab, doesn't view land as a simple commodity to be traded, to be sold. For him, that land is not simply money. It is his inheritance from his forefathers. The Lord had given that land uh, when the land was apportioned to Israel. It belonged to his ancestors. It was not just land, it was home. And uh, apart from very dire situations and poverty, you didn't readily part with your inheritance. And so Naboth, being a righteous Hebrew, says, no, I'm not going to part ways with this piece of land. He probably knew it was risky to defy the king. Nevertheless, The right thing to do. It seems Ahab at this juncture still has some moral scruples, more so than Jezebel, as we'll see. And so Ahab's response is to throw a royal temper tantrum. Uh, He is as inconsolable as the child who has his ball taken by his brother. There is nothing in the world that can compensate for the loss of that ball. That's Ahab. What is life without a vegetable garden? Uh, Not much. We're we're told that he's sullen, he's vexed, he's irritated, he doesn't want to eat. Life is not worth living without a vegetable garden. Now, this is, I think, one more uh, brushstroke in the portrait that Scripture gives us of Ahab. We've seen Ahab, the promoter of Baal worship, Ahab, the passive husband, more on that later, Uh, We've seen Ahab unresponsive to the powerful miracles that God shows again and again to show that he is Lord, not Baal. Uh, But this is a a different, though not utterly unexpected side to Ahab, Uh, Ahab, the sulk, you know, the the sullen, the vexed. Uh, He doesn't handle disappointment well. When he doesn't get what he wants, grumbling, self-pity, complaining. The truly royal response, however, would have been to to take this disappointment with composure and cheerfulness. That's the mark of a great heart, to face life's troubles and disappointments with composure and cheerfulness because your joy is not finally rooted in the ever-changing circumstances of life. It's rooted in something deeper and better. King Loon in uh, the horse and his boy story. Uh, The king in that story says, "This is what it means to be a king: to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years." To wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. That's a noble, kingly character. When there, when there isn't enough food, when there are trials, hardship, when there's not even uh, enough to eat, you wear your best clothes and you laugh louder than the next man. There, there is an inner strength that, does, that causes you not to crumble uh, when circumstances are difficult, that's a truly royal, a truly august character. It's a character that uh, Ahab very clearly doesn't have. But as we look at this passage, we note that there are ver- three very clear violations of the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's a clear violation of God's command not to murder. Naboth is murdered. There's a clear violation of the command not to bear false witness against your neighbor. False witness is born against Naboth. But these two violations of the Ten Commandments, we note, originate in Ahab's covetousness, the Tenth Commandment. These outward sins begin with an inner sin. Uh, Deuteronomy tells us, Deuteronomy 5.21, the Tenth Commandment is this. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting means inordinate desire, excessive desire for something. It could be a vegetable garden, big screen TV, house, uh, another person. Uh, whatever. But coveting is inordinate desire, and it is a mother sin that gives birth to all kinds of other sins, including in this case murder and false testimony. Coveting is a sign of of a deep spiritual problem that your heart is not right. It's restless. Chasing one thing after another to find satisfaction because your heart is not satisfied in God. Now, what happens to us when we Intensely desire something and don't get it. When you really, really want something and you don't get it, what is your response? What is the characteristic response of others? Well, one typical response is self-pity. Things never work out for me. Another typical response is seething frustration, grumbling frustration. Hate my life. Things never work out for me. Another response is resentment of those whom you perceive to get in the way of the thing that you want. If my husband would just work a little harder, we could get that car. We could have that vacation. I'll resent those who get in the way of stuff. Another response are, is uh, rash choices, foolish choices. If you really, really want something, you get in massive credit card debt, right? You spend too much because uh, your desires are out of control. Covetousness is a spiritual problem, and the antidote, the answer to covetousness is contentment. Contentment means liking what you have, being satisfied with your lot in life, being satisfied with what God has given to you. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, in his wonderful uh, meditation on contentment called the rare jewel of Christian contentment, says that we don't get to contentment by adding to our condition. We get to contentment, contentment through subtraction. We subtract our desires from our desires. So we don't lift up our condition in life to the level of our desires to find contentment. Instead, we bring down our desires to our circumstances. Here's what he says. A Christian comes to contentment not so much by adding to what he would have, but rather by subtracting from his desires so as to make his desires and his circumstances even and equal. If you don't have what you like, like what you have. That principle. And he, uh, Burroughs argues that it's only a heart that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit and finds its satisfaction in God that is capable of that kind of contentment. Being, being satisfied with your lot in life, even if it's, a, if it's a very humble lot. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As we draw on the strength of our Savior, Jesus Christ, moment by moment, day by day, we find that we can be at peace even when our desires are not met, even when we are disappointed. As we walk with the Lord and enjoy fellowship with Him, uh, drawing on His strength, we can be satisfied with even relatively modest circumstances. And practically speaking, another thing that is tremendously helpful in cultivating contentment is practicing gratitude. Pausing to consider everything that has gone right in your life. We get hung up on all the things that haven't gone right. But pause for a moment and consider everything that has gone right. And begin to itemize those blessings and praise and thank God for them. And as you thank God, you'll, you'll find that your heart increasingly is at peace with where you are. Gratitude is the path to contentment. So that's Ahab. Uh, now, Jezebel is a good wife. She loves her husband. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Uh, um... We see later that she incites him to evil. Much of his, the darkness in his life is the result of her influence, but more on that later. She comes to console her wounded husband. She wants to know how she can help. What's going on? Uh, well, I can't get the land that I want, and Naboth won't sell it to me, so there. Her response is very instructive. Do you now govern Israel? This is a rebuke. Aren't you the king? What are you doing carrying on like this? You're the king. Take what you want. See, Ahab is, for all of his faults, still a a king of Israel. And Israel has a long tradition that the law is king even over the king. Yahweh rules over his people, and he rules over his people through his law. And even someone as wretched as Ahab still seems to have some scruples about just brutally taking land that doesn't belong to him from others. He still has some semblance of just dealings. But Jezebel doesn't have those scruples. She comes from a different cultural and religious environment. She is a Sidonian. She's undoubtedly undoubtedly seen her dad, Ethbaal take land from others, use his power to get what he wants. That's what kings do. Might makes right is Jezebel's philosophy. You want the land? I'll get you the land. That's not a problem. Is that it? Is that all? Let me get it for you. So she starts writing Ahab's name on all the letters and stamping his royal seal on all the letters to tell the elders of uh, of the in um, Naboth's town. Here's what we're going to do to get rid of Naboth, and you will, of course, comply. She uses though his royal authority. She takes the tokens of royal authority that belong to Ahab, his name, his uh, imprint, his seal. And she uses them to do what she wants to do. She is the acting king. And he, very characteristic fashion, is the passive spectator. He doesn't intervene to stop her. He's just going to say, what, what is she going to do? How will this work out? Uh, just as we, get, we see Ahab's character from, from many different angles, we see Jezebel's character as we read Kings from many different angles. Uh, she's the more dynamic and efficiently ruthless and efficiently evil of the two. They're both evil but she's just more effective at being evil. Uh, We see that she's the one who begins to promote Baal worship when she arrives in Samaria. She pushes her husband and he follows her lead. Uh, Significantly, the prophets of Baal eat at her table. She seeks to slaughter the prophets of the Lord, get rid of them from the land. She's the one, arguably, who halts the possibility of national repentance after Mount Carmel when she seeks to take Elijah's life. That's Jezebel, and even here, you want the land, I'll get you the land. No big deal, we just have to knock off Naboth and get the land. That's Jezebel. And we're told, when we get a little summary of Ahab's reign at the end of verse 25, Uh, We're told of Ahab whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. So much of the evil comes from not just from Ahab's own dark heart, but from Jezebel sitting behind him, whispering in his ear, and nudging him ever onward toward greater and greater evil. So among Ahab's many sins and many faults is the fault of passivity, the failure to lead. He didn't lead those whom he ought to have led. He was led by those whom he ought to have led. Instead of restraining the wickedness and folly of his wife and leading Israel, he was frequently, as here, a passive spectator, being led instead of leading. His sin was the sin of abdication, not using the authority that God had given to him, uh, but following when he should have been leading. And this is a common male sin, isn't it? Not leading, not providing direction, Sometimes uh, that kind of abdication is the result of ignorance. You didn't see your dad model it, for example, in the home. So you don't really have a good category for leading and directing a household. And sometimes, man, we know how lazy we are. It's just exhausting to lead and direct a household, right? We want peace and quiet, and we're prepared to buy that peace and quiet at the expense of letting other people make the decisions, right? Uh, Whatever the cause, though, whatever the cause, this is a common sin. To not own your responsibilities, responsibilities toward your wife, toward your children, towards your household. Uh, not lead the way God has called you to lead and just let things go. That is a sin. Leadership in the home doesn't just mean providing financially for your family. Of course, it includes that. That's necessary but not sufficient. Uh, Leadership in the home means taking initiative. It begins with let's. Let's do a budget. Let's put the kids to bed on time. Let's get together to pray. Let's have the neighbors over. It begins with initiative taking. It begins with recognizing where your family is, where it needs to go, and intervening in a life-giving way to get them there. It means you're present. It means that you know what's going on. It means that you're actively intervening to help your wife and children flourish in every way. Scripture calls men to lead their household. Not selfishly. Selflessly, as Christ serves the church, they're called to lay down their lives for their wife and children. And those under their authority uh, should flourish in every way. That's God's will for men. And it is a great sin to disregard this responsibility, to passively let things happen uh, and not take initiative to move your home in the direction that God wants it to move. Sometimes happens, a wife will come to her husband and say, hey, what should we do about the kid's education? Should we have these people over? Should we buy this? And a common response is, "Eh, whatever you think, I trust you. And it looks good, you know, he's trusting his wife. The problem is she's looking to him for leadership, and he's not providing it. Right? He's taking the, easy, the path of least resistance. God has called men to lead their households wisely and well. There's bad leadership, of course, dictatorial use of authority. That's not what's in view. But wise, Christ-like exercise of authority for the good of those in that household is what God calls every uh, father and husband to. If that hasn't been happening, then God this morning calls you to repent. Repent wisely, though. Don't be like a bull in a china shop. I haven't been leading, now I'm going to lead. Right? Look out. Begin slowly. Begin with prayer and repentance. Begin by thinking about what leadership would look like and take baby steps. Baby steps are fine in this kind of thing. If you haven't been leading, maybe take initiative to call the family together for prayer. Let's pray tonight. Let's gather around scripture and begin doing that more and more. But one of Ahab's failures is to lead. He's passive. He is led by the one that God has called him to lead. Hence, King Jezebel's plot. That's what I was attempting to underscore. Well, she has her plan. She sets it in motion. She uses Ab- uh, Ahab's seals, uh, his name. She writes to the elders, and she gives very specific instructions. Call a fast. Naboth in a prominent place, get some worthless fellows to accuse him of having uh, blasphemed God and uh, plotted against the king, treason, and then take him outside and execute him. And if you look at it carefully, there's a symmetry between her instructions and what's done. Do this, this, this. They did this, this, this. They obeyed her to a T. Everything goes according to plan. Uh, The crowd takes Naboth out and they execute him, and then they write back to Jezebel, it's done. Here is one more instance of innocent bloodshed. The righteous Naboth, because he didn't want to part ways with the inheritance of his f- fathers, is unjustly accused and unjustly killed. There seems to be no public outcry. Everybody seems to look the other way, including the leaders in uh, Naboth's town. The response is simply to write back to Jezebel, The deed is done. And so she goes to Ahab and says, he's dead. Go take the land. There is no more Naboth to get in the way of the vegetable garden. Nobody sees. Nobody notices. Life goes on. And Naboth is perhaps quickly forgotten. Is there anybody who sees the injustice that has taken place? Is there anybody who cares? There is, if we just stop reading at verse 16, a kind of finality it's the perfect crime. It's been carried out. Nobody complains. Ahab's on his way to take possession of the, of the vineyard. Everything has gone according to plan, or has it? The word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. Elijah is notified about this recent injustice. And notice uh, how Ahab addresses Elijah Have you found me, O my enemy? almost as if he's hunted by the prophet of the Lord. The hound of heaven follows the guilty, murdering Ahab everywhere he goes. There is no human being to stand up to Ahab, but God dogs his every step and sends his prophet Elijah to bring down a word of judgment on Ahab because of what has transpired. Just as the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will lick your own blood, Ahab, in the place where you killed an innocent man. And not only that, but all of the Ahabites, all of your descendants, your dynasty, will be completely cut off and consumed as by fire. I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab, every male, bond or free in Israel. Not only will you be destroyed, but your dynasty will be destroyed and completely wiped out. The earth will be cleansed of all Ahabites. Those of your descendants who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, including Jezebel. Those who die in the field will be eaten by birds. Thus saith the Lord. This is a word of judgment against The injustice that has taken place. And the point is clear. The Lord is a righteous judge who sees evil and oppression, loathes it, and always acts in judgment on oppression. We see this theme again and again in Scripture. God, the righteous judge, who hears the cry of the oppressed and acts on their behalf. Psalm nine. Verses 7, 8, and 12, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Everybody else might. There are anonymous sufferers, faceless sufferers that nobody knows about, but God knows of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Psalm 37, 14 through 15, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Second Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, that is, his people, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's who God is. Righteous judge who sees oppression and affliction, especially of his people, and he acts to deliver his people. The Lord is firmly on the side of the victim against the oppressor. We need to be clear about that. That is the character of God. He is firmly on the side of the oppressed against their oppressors. And judgment will come upon the wicked, and those who are wronged will receive judgment justice. Now, it's commonly thought if you die before human justice is able to get at you, you've gotten away unscathed. Right? If you die and your evil deeds don't catch up with you before you die and you evade man's justice, then you're in the clear. But this is wishful thinking on the part of the wicked. To escape man's justice through death is only to step into the tribunal of God Almighty and to suffer eternal punishments. It's to jump from the frying pan into the fire. Death is no refuge for oppressors. To evade human justice through death is to expose yourself to even more severe justice and judgment. Uh, Karl Marx uh, famously said that religion is the opium of the people. It's a drug that enables us to get through this life. It's wishful thinking. Uh, but the poet, the uh, Polish poet Czeslaw, I don't know if I said that correctly, Czeslaw Milosz, uh, says that the the real wishful thinking is the belief that there is no judgment after death. So he retorts to Marx. So you want to talk about wishful thinking? Here's wishful thinking: the belief that you can do what you want in this life and there's no count- accountability on the other side. That's wishful thinking. It's terribly naive. He writes, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death, the huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we are not going to be judged. The true opium is the belief that there is no God, so that humans are free to do precisely as they please. It's not Christianity that constitutes wishful thinking. It's secularism, The the belief that once you die, you're gone. Biloche says uh, that's the true naivete, the true gullibility. A day is coming when God will judge the deeds of men. Every drop of innocent blood that has been shed from uh, Abel to the end of the world will be avenged. All those men, women, and children who died without anyone even knowing faceless anonymous victims god knows each and every one of them and he will avenge each and every one of them if not in this life then in the life to come there is a judgment coming and all wrongs will be put to right now if you believe that that gives you grounds for hope in a dark world it means that all of the wrongs that we see in society, that all of the wrongs that make us reluctant to listen to the nightly news, all of those wrongs will be finally righted. The, the righteous judge of heaven and earth will punish wickedness and will bring relief to his people and his creation from all evil. He will restore and renew all that has been damaged by the wickedness, oppression, and injustice of men. Wickedness will be judged, and it will be finally expelled from God's new creation. It has no future. It is the good things, love, friendship, joy, peace. These are the things that go on and on forever. Oppression and injustice will will cease, and God will judge oppressors. It's interesting, in Scripture, when God comes to judge the world, on the one hand, if you're an evildoer, if you haven't, Uh, received pardon of your sins if you're one of the oppressors, right? Uh, That judgment is a cause for terror. On the other hand, if you belong to God, the righteous judgment of God is a reason for rejoicing. God is showing up to put things to right and to bring relief to humanity, and this is a reason for us to rejoice and be glad. Revelation says of that future world, that future city, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Wickedness will be wiped out. Righteousness, goodness, love will be established forever and ever. That's a foundation for hope in a dark world. God will right every wrong. And also, incidentally, this keeps us from vindictive, taking uh, vengeance into our own hands and being vindictive. Paul writes in Romans twelve nineteen, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you believe in a final judgment, that gives you the resources not to retaliate. If God will take care of it, and he will one way or another, then that gives you the strength not to take matters into your own hand. So what is underscored about God is that he is a righteous judge who sees wickedness and punishes wickedness. Ahab will be punished, yes, for introducing Baal worship into Israel, but also for shedding the blood of an innocent man looking the other way, as Jezebel does, and of course the Lord ultimately condemns Ahab for what transpires. So we see the severity of God. We see God's, God's just judgment on oppression, but we also see the mercy of God. We get in verses 25 and 26 a summary of Ahab's wickedness, and it's bad. It's an unprecedented wickedness in Israel. But that terrible, wretched Ahab, when he hears the words of the prophet, words of judgment, tears his clothes, uh, he puts on rough clothing, sackcloth, he doesn't eat, and he laments. Now, quick parenthetical observation here. Isn't it ironic that, again, he's not eating? Did you notice that when he doesn't get the land He doesn't eat because he's so upset about it. He's gotten the land, but he's still not eating. He's fasting uh, because he's heard the judgment of the Lord. What do we learn from that? I I think it shows that whatever we get through evil, right, through evil means uh, won't pay off. The delight that we had hoped we would have in the thing that we so desperately wanted, it doesn't pay off. It doesn't provide the delight we thought it would. In any case, we find Ahab fasting, dejected. And I don't think that this is a moment of deep repentance, true repentance, where Ahab is saying, The Lord is now my God, and I'll worship him and turning I'm turning from all evil. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think it's more like remorse. Ahab understands that because of his wickedness, things are going to be very difficult for him. And and there's a there's an important distinction between grieving over the consequences of your sin and turning back to God. People can r- feel remorse and great grief because of the terrible things they've done and the miserable consequences they've unleashed on their life as a result. That's not necessarily repentance. Repentance, first and foremost, is grief that we've dishonored God, that we've sinned against Him, and we want to turn back to Him. I think what we see with Ahab falls short Of true repentance. And yet, and yet, his act of humbling himself catches the Lord's attention. Notice he goes to his prophet Elijah Have you seen? Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Did you notice? It says, What's fascinating about the response is just how prompt God is. At the, the first Tiny motion of repentance. God's already there. And he is, as it were, excited. I just saw a little repentance in Ahab. Did you see it, Elijah? Because of that semblance of repentance, I'm going to mitigate my judgment. It's still coming, but it won't happen in his day. Wow. This is not even full-blooded repentance This is a contrition over what's coming to him. And nevertheless, the Lord sees it. It says, because of that, Ahab, I'm going to mitigate uh, the judgment that has been pronounced. What would deep repentance do? What would Ahab experience if he turned to the Lord from from the heart, turned back to God? This passage, I think, beautifully underscores the mercy of God. God is ready, God's mercy is ready to pounce on the sinner as soon as there's the first hint of repentance. Jesus tells us in Luke 15, 10, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God's delight is not in the death of the sinner. God's joy is in the repentance of the sinner. God's desire is that sinners would turn from their sins and come back to him and ask for mercy And he is glad to give that mercy lavishly, freely, fully. This moment reveals something about the mercy of God. His readiness to draw near to sinners who turn from their wicked ways. And it shows us how deep the mercy of God goes. If there's hope even for Ahab, if God's judgment on Ahab could be mitigated by this semblance of repentance... There's hope for every single sinner. Israel's worst king, promoted Baal worship, looked the other way when the prophets of the Lord were slaughtered, uh, responsible for the death of an innocent man, and even for this kind of individual, there's mercy and forgiveness. Think about that. There is mercy and forgiveness for even Ahab's if they will turn from their wickedness and come back to the Lord. What that means is there's mercy and forgiveness for you. However deep you've gone into sin, the mercy of God goes deeper still. And there is abundant mercy in God to cover every single evil thing that you have ever done. That kind of mercy, that kind of pardon is there for the asking. Ask and you will receive. It's freely offered because it was procured by Jesus. It's not that God's judgment on wickedness is set aside and dismissed if we come to him. It's that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, takes upon himself the judgment that is deserved. All those who come to God, who repent of their sins, turn from it, and trust in Jesus will be pardoned because Jesus takes upon himself the justice, the punishment that we deserve. The mercy of God is there for the asking. Ask for it. It was there for Ahab, and it is there for every single person who comes to the end of themselves and asks the Lord for mercy. Uh, The Lord's response to Ahab stands forever as a reminder of just how deep the goodness of God goes, and it should be an encouragement to every single person here. However far you've strayed, God is ready to receive you if you turn and submit to him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for your righteous judgment on wickedness, and we praise you for your lavish mercy towards sinners. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we confront the darkness in this world, in our lives, we would not lose heart, but we would remember your righteous opposition to evil and also the depth of mercy that you've given to us. Amen.